I'm Arya Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corin Podcast. Every week on the Corin Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. Shalom from Jerusalem. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Corin Podcast. Uh, this one's going to be a little bit different to the rest of the season. Uh, Arya and I are both sitting with our, our drinks in hands to have a, a smaller chaim for the end of season one of the Corin Podcast. Arya, l'chaim. L'chaim, yes, it is our season finale. Uh, we're marking the end of the first season of the podcast. And uh, for to mark the occasion, uh, we have a very special episode this week for you. We do indeed. Uh, this, this season has been uh, both, you know, wonderfully exciting. Uh, a brand new podcast. We've spoken to some of the biggest names um, in modern orthodoxy: uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, Rabbi Sachs, Erica Brown. Um, and unfortunately, had to record two uh, in memorial episodes. One for. Uh, Rabbi Steinsaltz Zitzel, and of course one for Rabbi Sachs Zitzel, who uh, passed away very suddenly um, only a couple of months ago. Um, but to finish off our season, we've decided to do something a little bit different, um, and we've been asking for your questions, and you've been sending them in. Um, so we're going to discuss a little bit about uh, Corin behind the scenes. Um, we have consulted with some of our colleagues who are going to give a little bit of uh, extra insight into some of the things that we do here. Uh, so should we jump straight into our first question, Ari? Sure. So our first question is, uh, how does Corin decide which titles to publish? Right, this was sent me by a few people, uh, and it's a very, very good question indeed. Um, Ari and I are actually both involved in different ways in uh, that process, um, but we decided to go straight to the source, um, and speak to the person who was actually the first ever guest on the current podcast, um, the chairman of the editorial board, uh, Rabbi Ruven Ziegler, to find out exactly what's involved in deciding what is published. How do we choose what to publish? The more basic question is, uh, why do we publish books at all? Uh, I think we are very uh, driven and motivated by by a vision, by values. Uh, we're not just producing a consumer product. Uh, people, you know, in life, they need many things. They need uh, health, food, shelter. Uh, but one of the most important things that they need is meaning. And I think everyone involved at Koren, whether it's the writers and the editors who are involved with the content of the book, whether it's the graphic artists, the typesetters who are involved with, you know, the, the, the form of the book, even the people who are involved in the bookkeeping and sales and marketing in the warehouse, everyone sees themselves as part of that meaning-making enterprise. And that really affects the atmosphere of everything that goes on. Now, uh, we have an editorial board that goes through submissions. We get a flood of submissions. Uh, we can only accept maybe 10, 20% at most of submissions um, just because of the volume. There's really so much creativity going on now in the Jewish world, whether in America, whether in Israel, 
Um, it's a it's a great time uh, for 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 writers for publishers. Um, now there are also books that we that don't come to us in submissions, but that we solicit people who you know we go to them uh, whether they've written books or even if they haven't written books. If we hear someone who said something, who spoke, you know, and had something to say, someone who wrote an article, we'll go to them sometimes and say, you know, you should really write a book, and then we'll talk to them about it. Um, so what's the editorial board looking for? Um, so there are quite a few things. Uh, the top thing, I think, is quality. Books should be interesting. It should be thoughtful. Uh, it should respect the readers. Um, not speak down to them. Uh, the book should be unafraid. It should confront problems. It should confront uh, modernity. It should confront academia. Whatever the issues are, we should have confidence in Torah and we should be unafraid. Uh, we want our books to be accessible to a broad readership, but not at the cost of oversimplifying. So there's that fine balance that has to be kept. Uh, we're very much into good writing. Um, we are an unabashedly uh, orthodox publisher. Um, and as such, you know, we want to, our, our goals are to promote really love of Hashem, love of mitzvot, uh, love of humanity, love of Israel, whether that means also, it means love of fellow Jews, love of the land of Israel, love of the state of Israel. Uh, we want to promote uh, pride in being Jewish. I think most of all, we want to reveal to readers the beauty of Torah. We want to make readers fall in love with the Torah. Now, within the Orthodox world, we are most firmly based within uh, modern Orthodoxy in, in, in terms of Chutzlaretz, uh, religious Zionism in terms of Israel, but our approach is very much a big tent Orthodox one. We're not out to exclude people. We want to bring everyone under one roof, uh, and we've had success in doing so. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that we want to exclude non-Orthodox readers. We, we're very happy and we reach out to readers who are non-Orthodox Jews, to readers, is, we even have readers who are non-Jews. We have readers across the spectrum of Orthodoxy. We, it's, it's always gratifying uh, to have readers from, from different ends of the Orthodox spectrum who appreciate our books. Um, so we're looking for that. And we are trying to, you know, be more and more inclusive in terms of the, the range of writers. Um, our audience that we're reaching out to is uh, we try to be inclusive of different ages, different levels of knowledge, different uh, levels of background. Uh, of course, if we do get a, a manuscript that's just too niche or too narrow, too, so it might be more appropriate for an academic publisher. You know, we're still trying to reach the broader public. So... Uh, regretfully, sometimes we have to turn down high-quality books that are just too niche. Um, we want to be, and we are, I think, proud of all of our books. It doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything that's written in every book, but that's okay, as long as they're written within the parameters of faithfulness to Judaism, uh, as long as the books uh, contribute to uplifting the discourse and not debasing it. So, so we, and as long as they're written, as we said, as I said before, you know, in a manner that respects the readers. Um, so we're, we're proud of it and, and happy to publish it. Another uh, value that's important to us is to increase the number of uh, quality books by, by female writers. Uh, you know, if women are half the Jewish population, theoretically, they should be half the authors also. Um, but uh, for many, many reasons... Uh, that's not the case right now, and we were trying to do whatever we can to encourage, to incubate, to 
to uh, further uh, high quality writing by women. We have uh, things, plans that haven't reached fruition yet, plans that have reached fruition, and we have a lot going on in that area. Uh, we are a proudly Zionist publisher. Um, the name Koren, everyone knows. I mean, we have many imprints, Koren, Magid, Toby, uh, but we're all under the general aegis of Koren. Koren is most famous for the Koren Tanakh. And that's another area that we that we that was very neglected that we tried to promote. Um, and uh, we publish books in many fields in halacha and philosophy, uh, midrash, Talmud, prayer, Hasidut, etc., etc. But we also do have a concentration of really excellent, high quality books in Tanakh. Whether it's the Magid Studies in Tanakh series, the Magid Tanakh Companion series, um, whether in Koren we have our forthcoming translation of the Tanakh into English. Um, we have uh, the Land of Israel series, uh, Land of Israel Bible series. Uh, people may be familiar with the Exodus that came out. Uh, Shmuel is about to come out uh, and more books in the works, uh, whether it's the Mikrot HaDorot series. Uh, Tanakh is an area of special concentration for us. Um, but really, you know, if you want to know the kind of values that, that uh, we're trying to promote and, and the kind of vision that animates us, so it's very easy to, if you look, there are a certain number of really great writers who we've published, we've been honored to publish many of their books, not just one or two, but quite a few. Uh, writers like uh, Rav Lichtenstein, Rav Steinsaltz, Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Lamb. So, those are the books that, you know, the values that they espouse are those that we're trying to promote. So that's really the kind of thing that we're looking to, that animates our vision. So, you know, to summarize, there's there's a lot of things that we're looking for in uh, in the editorial board, books that are not too niche, that can reach out to a broad public, uh, books that are that are readable, that are interesting, that enlighten, that are faithful and uh, most of all, books that really enhance and spread the, the educational and religious vision that animates everything we do. Right. So it's actually a very interesting process. Um, you know, we only publish a very small number of these submissions um, that are sent in. Um, and we do occasionally go out looking for people to write specific books that we think might be uh, interesting or are missing from the Jewish library at large. Um, Barry, you know, what, what, what's your thought on the process? Well, <clears throat> I think it's important to think about um, with a book, with any book, we always try to think about um, sort of like the end, the end user, you, the listeners, the readers, how, how are you going to read it? How are you going to enjoy it? What are you going to learn from it? Um, is this a book you're going to want to read again in the future? Um, you know, as as an example, over the past couple of months, you know, we got a few books in various genres relating to Corona in different ways, um, and you know, we had to ask the question: is is it does it make sense to publish a book on Corona now? Well, okay, fine, it'd be very interesting now, but in five, ten years' time, hopefully, please God, uh, it will just be a thing of the past, and uh, the book. The book will be about, you know, you know, will be even less useful than a, a Birka Sahama book. Well, I think that's a very interesting point as well. Sorry to interrupt. No, I, th I think that's also a very interesting point. You know, there are, there are so many books that we'd love to publish just because they'd be fascinating. But we also have to think about what is marketable. Um, you know, 
how much interest is there in a certain book it, just because the subject matter might be absolutely fascinating um is anyone going to buy it um you know if someone were to submit a manuscript you know with their thoughts and insights over 800 pages on the opening three verses of the book of Ovadia it could be fantastic but how many people realistically are going to buy it and that often unfortunately uh, has to play a part in our decision I think something also to think about which is going to be a weird thing to hear in a podcast from a publishing company but I think it's also worth thinking about for people who are thinking about writing a book or whatever it is that it's it's I wouldn't write off the internet so soon I think that sometimes we get books and say well, this book would make a really great blog or this book would make a really great website people are, are learning Torah and accessing information more online than ever now um, like you say Alex when there's, you have a book which is maybe a particular niche maybe it is something that would be more lent to um, something online rather than it being in print right and it should also it shouldn't obviously it shouldn't deter people from submitting manuscripts um, because you know they could they could turn into best selling books um, but also just suggestions you know you, people can reach out to us people do reach out to us often on, on social media and on email saying you know I've noticed that this particular thing uh, is missing in bookstores it's missing online um, there just doesn't seem to be any writing or any literature. But again, you know, people shouldn't be deterred from either submitting manuscripts from taking the time to write them. You know, even if it doesn't get published, you're still contributing to the discourse. Um, and you know, also just suggesting things because you know, the idea that you have might just be the next big thing that no one else has thought of yet. Um, we're very well placed to try and find the people to put the pen to paper if that's something that our listeners are not able to do themselves. I think something also to add, because I don't think it's come up on, and didn't, it didn't necessarily come up in what Ruben said also, is that a lot of what has been said is more relevant in terms of Magid and Toby, but in terms of Koren, you know, how do we decide what, what books to publish in Koren? I think one of the things that we always try to do is to ensure that we're doing something that hasn't been done before. We're not just taking a book and translating into English and doing that for the sake of it. Um, or doing, you know, as many different chumashim with different commentaries we can do um sort of in, but rather to say you know how can we do this differently what can we bring to this um classic sefer or machsa or tanakh or whatever it is how can we do it differently what can we bring to it that hasn't been done before um i think that's something we're always trying to do in koran right um, specifically and without trying to like plug specific i think what's for sure is that um Huh? No, without trying to plug specific books, you know, we have at the moment three different volumes all on the book of Exodus from Corin. There's the, the Corin land of Israel Tanakh. That sounds like a plug. It doesn't like a plug. No, but I, but I think a good example of that is the fact we have we have currently three different books all on the book of Exodus. The Corin land of Israel Tanakh, the Corin Lev Ladat Chumash, and the new Mikrat Hadarot series. Each one is doing a different thing. Each one is taking a different approach to the book of Exodus, an approach that hasn't been taken by anybody else up to now. Um, and they're also unique from each other. And if you look at each one, they can't be combined into one volume um, because you'll end up with you know, a single volume that's thousands of pages long. 
just trying to get in all the material we're trying to give over but each one um, is doing something very very different to anything that exists um, and very different from each other as well and I think that's that's something that Corin we try and do with with Corin is, is as you're saying bringing bringing things out that have never been done before and bringing a new approach yeah, normally I can take my chumash to shul on Shabbat in my talit bag but I think once we get around to Sefer Shemot this year I'm going to have to take a rucksack for my Corin Tanach the land of Israel exodus and a Lev Ladat exodus and a Pashat Shemot with Mikra Adorat Gonna need a lot. Um, I mean, I mean, having said all that, of course, you know, while you know we try to be selective and careful with what we're publishing, um, we aren't short on pub things that we are publishing. You know, we're working on something like fifty Magid books at the moment. Um, a lot's coming out in twenty twenty one, and I mean, we we just mentioned now, but maybe as a spoiler alert, we uh, touched on some of the major projects in the pipeline. One of the questions that we got was does Corin have major projects in the pipeline um and actually to answer this we went to the publisher of Corin Publishers Matthew Miller um who told us a bit more about some of those projects that we have mentioned already um in a little bit of detail and give a picture on what's coming up in addition to the ongoing projects um we're producing both in Hebrew and in English um and now Spanish, uh, about 30, 40 Magid books a year. Um, we also, under the Koran imprint, have at least three major projects uh, underway. One is the new Tanakh, which the first edition is currently at press. Uh, the translation of the Torah section was by the late Rabbi Sachs, and there were about 50 people involved in this five-year project. Um, the second is the what we're calling the Tanakh of the Land of Israel. This is a fully, lavishly fully illustrated edition of the Tanakh seen through contemporaneous eyes. That is to say, looking at, say, Shemot through the eyes of runaway slaves, the Hebrew slaves, looking at Shmuel, which is now at press, looking uh, looking at the, the period of the, what archeologists call the Iron Age um, and how, Jewish history interacted and was very real uh, at that time. The other is, um, the other major project is quite interesting. It's called the Koran Mikrat Hadorot. Uh, we're releasing it now, the first half dozen volumes. This is an overview of um, um, Meforshim, not, not only the traditional Meforshim, but starting with Philo and going through to the late 20th century to uh, Nechama Leibowitz, uh, Rav Soloveitchik, and uh, Rav Aaron Cutler. Um, these are a, a two millennia survey of um, biblical commentary, which is not normally covered. So yeah, we have a lot of projects going on now, and uh, I think these are quite unique projects as well. Something that Matthew didn't uh, mention were some of the ongoing projects with Magid um, as well. You know, we have a number of, uh, I think, the two central series in uh, the Magid catalogue are the Magid Studies in Tanakh um, and the Magid Modern Classics, which, uh, you know, the Magid Studies in Tanakh will eventually come to an end, uh, you know, once we have a volume on each book of Tanakh, but the Magid Modern Classics is is ever expanding. 
Ja, yeah, I mean, of course, also the Magid studies in Tanakh's uh, sister series. Uh, Magid Tanakh Companions does have new volumes coming out um, in 2021, in the first half of 2021. So keep an eye out for those new volumes as well. Also under Magid is where we have our Parisha commentary um, being published. Um, and a very exciting relationship that began this year um, was with between Corin Magid and Aleph Bita uh, and Rabbi David Foreman, who was previously on the podcast talking about um, the work he does. Uh, and the first two volumes of his Parisha Companions were p- published both this year uh, on Genesis and Exodus um, and have been amazingly well received. Um, and you know we're looking forward to the, the final three volumes and hopefully even more books by Rabbi Foreman coming out over the coming uh, the coming years. Yeah, I think Rabbi Foreman is just like a great example also of what's exciting about Magid is the opportunity that we have um, to partner with you know the, some of the most exciting educators and teachers in the Jewish world today, like Rabbi Foreman, um, like Dr. Erica Brown, you know Nachama Price. Here in Israel, we've just published a book by uh, Oriam Mavorach, which is also going to be coming out next year in English. And that's definitely also one to watch this space. And of course, you know, examples of the leading Tanakh teachers here in Israel, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman, Rabbi Alex Israel, Dr. Yael Ziegler, Dr. Tova Ganzel. Um, Magid is just really an amazing platform to be able to bring the Torah, um, a new and exciting Torah of these teachers, um, to readers around the world. You mentioned earlier that the Magaman Educational Still Series, um, that in 2020 uh, was expanded into the youth Haggadah as well, um, which is a you know a, an interactive uh, parent-child-driven um, Haggadah uh, put, together, put together by Dr. Daniel Rose. Um, and we also, uh, just a few weeks ago, published the Koren Levladat Chumash, um, which is sort of also part of our educational series, uh, the Negla edition Levladat Chumash, which is a Chumash geared towards students not necessarily high school students but people interested in learning chumash in a new and exciting way um it's something that gives the tools to to learn it doesn't focus on building translation skills necessarily but in sort of analytical skills how to compare and contrast different commentaries uh how to ask questions how to figure out you know themes uh, that come up throughout the uh, the chumash itself um, and that's another, you know, the educational series of, of books that we have is something else that is exciting and hopefully will continue to expand in the coming years. Well, now we've talked a little bit about how we decide which titles to publish and also to give, giving you a bit of a taste of what's coming up. Another question we received was, how does the printing process work? Once we send a book, once we decide to publish a book and it's done, ready to go, once it's sent to press, what actually happens next? So for there, we went to uh, two of our colleagues in the office um, that uh, oversee uh, all the steps of when a book gets sent to press all the way to reaching uh, the hands of readers across the world. Uh, We spoke to Hanoch Kur and Shari Fish, who maybe some of our listeners have even been in touch with in the past, who gave us insights on how the books come to be. As soon as we get a file, we send it to the printer together with all the specifications we want of the kind of cover and kind of paper and kind of printing color and everything else. A few days later, we will get proofs. The proofs represent the signatures. Each book is built out of various signatures of either 8, 16 or 32 pages. 
each signature is basically a very big sheet folded into three or four and then cut at the edges. So not necessarily in a signature, page one would be next to page two, but after it's folded, then it has to be in place. So that's what we have to prove to see that everything we sent comes back in the right order. Um, after they do that, they start the printing. Different machines are used for different kinds of books, whether it's color books, whether it's black and white, uh, whether it's Bible paper, each one has its own special machine. After they print, they fold it into three or two four, like we said about the signatures, and then they cut it on three sides. So that's the side that you can open, and they stick together the spine. On top of that, they put an end paper that's glued to the last page and the first page of the book on one side, and on the other side, it's glued to the cover that's in hardcover, paperback. It works a bit differently, but more or less the same concept. And from there on, you basically have a book. The process with the printer can take four to six weeks, depending on the season. Sending a book like we just did to the printer in December means we lose about a week for Christmas and New Year's when many of their staff are on vacation. This will travel by truck to our Danbury, Connecticut warehouse. Usually takes about two to three days. Uh, we will then ship from Connecticut to our distribution centers in Canada, the UK, and Israel. Um, but the majority of our books will remain in the United States. That's where the majority of our English language customers are. Um, trade and customers, their orders are processed by our Danbury, Connecticut warehouse. And we ship via USPS Media Mail, FedEx Ground, UPS Ground, depending on the size and distance of the order. I've also been known to use um, freight uh, trucks to get large quantities to other people's um, warehouses. Of course, when Shari was talking about uh, where books were being printed, she was referring to the English language books. Um, but the majority of the Hebrew language books are being printed uh, right here in Israel. It's not just about making sure the books are printed, because uh, once they get, as I think as Shari mentioned, um, once the books reach our warehouse, uh, our distribution facility in Connecticut, um, they then are sent all over the world. Um, and sometimes it takes a little bit of time, unfortunately, but the books do make it uh, to the UK, to Australia, to South Africa. Um, so we actually spoke to Shari very briefly as well um, about some of the most interesting places uh, that we have sent books. Now, I was asked what's the most exotic place that we've shipped to. Maybe there's a place called Macau. That was pretty different. We've also shipped to Korea, uh, Scandinavian countries, South American ones. These are all exotic to me. I, I don't travel that much. Uh, but perhaps our most unique, if not exotic, shipped to locations are correctional facilities, also known as prisons. Uh, we have a number of men, so far no women, who deeply appreciate our Bibles and prayer books. Sharon mentioned a number of very interesting and excited places that Koran books can be found. Um, I know that the Koran Talmud Babli, for example, as of uh, last year um, at the Siyam Hashas, uh, the Koran Talmud Babli was, was available in all 50 states of America, including Alaska and Hawaii, obviously. Um, and pretty much anywhere you go around the world, uh, you'll be able to find Koran books uh, adorning people's shelves. Yeah, Corinne is working with around a thousand schools, shuls, common organizations. It's reaching tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of readers and students worldwide to engaging, learning and being inspired by Corinne books. From Slovenia to Sri Lanka, from Trinidad to Tanzania, Corinne is really, truly a global presence. 
of course, if you've had the chance to see whether it's our Steinsaltz Koren Bavli or the Steinsaltz Tanach or Rabbi Sachs' Sidurim Machsorim, I'm sure you'll notice the beautiful Koren font, which is the hallmark and trademark of uh, Koren Publishers since Elio Koren founded it. And uh, we were asked the question whether there was any thought behind the way that the font looks, or is it just designed to be pretty? So for that, we went to Eliyahu Miskav, lead designer at Corin Publishers, who is involved in so many of the projects that you may have used, uh, have seen. If you're looking at the front of your Machzorim or your Sidurim and notice the uh, typography on the front, without a doubt, Eliyahu who was involved in that. And so there was no better person for us to go to to uh, tell us about the original Eliyahu, Eliyahu Koren, and how he came to design the Koren font. Eliyahu Koren didn't try to just make a font, and accidentally it happened to be beautiful. In his book, The Idea is Fulfillment, Eliyahu Koren says that he was once attending a Achnasat Sefer Torah. At the end of the event, he told his mother that he wished one day he could write an entire Sefer Torah himself. Well, he didn't. He didn't write the Sefer Torah. But when he was older, Eliyahu Koren's dream did become a reality in a different way. His aim was to create the first Bible to be produced entirely from Aleph to Tav, from A to Z, by Jews. Of course, Eliyahu Koren wasn't just interested in publishing any Tanakh, but the text of the Tanakh should be the most accurate and in a dedicated and special font and with a special and precise layout. The text itself of the Tanakh brings with it a lot of features that surround it, the Nekudot, vowelization, and Hamim, the trop. One of the unique features of the current lettering is that even when surrounded by all the Nekudot and Hamim, it still remains very clear and readable. The subject of legibility was paramount from the point of view of Eliyahu Koren, as he taught his student and as he writes in his book. Eliyahu Koren also consulted with opticians and checked with them the level of readability of the letters. He did this for the Koren Tanakh font and later also for the Koren Sidor font. Eliyahu Koren didn't think that his font would be used for regular users. For him, his font was destined only for the Olam Kodesh. The first generation of German typographers who led the new Betalel Academy beginning in 1935, such as Budko and Schechter, who were inspired by the Bauhaus school, they tried to return to the simple and pure shapes and clean the letters of any sign of tradition. However, for the typographers in the 1950s, such as Eliyahu Koren and Francesca Baruch, it was very important to preserve the tradition. Their main focus was on making the tradition from calligraphy to typography smoother. On the one hand, to be a filter from the mechanical and technical world, but on the other hand, the letter will be pleasant and readable and type preserve the tradition. Take, for example, the letter Lamed in the Koran font. The letter Lamed has a high top for printing. This is a disaster. This is not a good thing. This forces you to make large space between the lines and waste space of 
the paper. For Aliyah Koran, preserving tradition was more important than using paper. A final point is that despite what we have said, Aliyah Koran didn't like excess decoration. And with all the desire to preserve tradition, he preferred to give his letters a more modernist and relatively clean look, giving them a quiet and modest beauty. So Eliyahu actually touched uh, upon a bit, a bit to do with the life of Eliyahu Koren, founder of Koren Publishers um, and the Koren Tanakh. Um, and uh, with a little bit of a spoiler alert, hopefully in our next season, coming in early 2021, we're going to be doing a special episode um, looking more about the life of Eliyahu Koren and the publication of the original Koren Tanakh. So watch the space for that. At the top of the episode, we talked about how, um, obviously, unfortunately, this season we've had to have two memorial episodes. Um, and we got a question asking, what will the literary legacies of Rav Steintart and Rabbi Sachs look like? Uh, so for that, we went back to Matthew Miller, um, who talked a little bit about that. We've already seen their literary legacy. Their, their works in progress. Rabbi Sachs was both Rabbi Sachs and Rabbi Steinsaltz um, wrote and published ex extensively. Um, Rabbi Steinsaltz, to start with him, um, we've just produced the Talmud, the, it, which has received fabulous uh, critiques. Uh, it's being published in French. Um, his edition of the Mishnah is coming out in Hebrew. Um, his edition of uh, the Ad Hazakah has already been published and is in our third or fourth printing in Hebrew. Um, these will be published in English eventually. Uh, there are probably 40, 50 books Rabbi Steinsaltz wrote, which over the coming decades we will publish. Regarding Rabbi Sachs, we've been publishing his works for the last 12, 14 years. Uh, his Sidurim and Machsirim series is finished in the basic uh, Ashkenaz and Sephard Nusachim. Having said that, we are introducing his commentary with the other Nusachim from uh, Aram Soba to, um, to other, other Nusachim in, in, in several languages. His, um, as I mentioned earlier, his Torah translation has gone to press as part of our new Koren Tanakh uh, project. And of course, he was tragically struck uh, whilst he was in the middle of working on his commentary for the um, the Humash, which uh, will be back on track uh, with all of his notes and, and the work that he's done so far. So I think if you look at Rabbi Sachs's work in particular, I think he leaves a, more, a very strong moral, ethical voice, which speaks not only to Jews, Jew, to, not only to Jewish uh, audiences and just to Jewish learning, but to to all people, uh, I think his was a voice that was sorely lacking in today's uh, conversations. That he felt that he filled that need, and that need must be continued to be filled. You know, I think Matthew's right. It's it's difficult to try and say now, so soon after um, both giants have passed, uh, what their literary legacies will look like. We already do have an idea because both were such powerful forces, um, both in terms of just teaching Torah to so many 
thousands if not millions of people and both prolific prolific writers and uh, published authors um but i think i we could say with a certain amount of confidence that both Rosh Steinsaltz and Rabbi Sachs will be being studied for generations to come. You know, we could put them in the same category as the Rav and Rav Lechtenstein and Rav Amital, whose writings endure long after they are passing. Of course, one of Rosh Steinsaltz's significant uh, literary legacies will be his commentary and translation on the Talmud. Um, and that takes us nicely into our next question, um, which was what made us decide to publish a new edition um, of the Talmud with English translation, the Noe edition, Korean Talmud Bavli. And to hear about that, we went to Rabbi Abishai Magenza, who is the project manager for Koran, and also worked closely on the Korean Talmud Bavli project. In order to understand the rationale for creating the new translation for the Quran Talmud, we need to understand uh, the objectives Rav Steinsaltz was trying to achieve uh, back in the late 60s when he created the original Hebrew commentary. Rav Steinsaltz wanted to make the Talmud accessible to modern Israelis, and towards that end, he addressed two main issues. One is, uh, of course, the language barrier, which is why his commentary focuses much more on um, translating the Aramaic into modern Hebrew. Uh, the other issue is understanding the world within which the Talmudic scholars lived. And uh, for that reason, Ruf Steinsaltz added the marginalia, uh, discussing anything from history, archaeology, um, and various uh, scientific topics, uh, linguistics, and so on. And once these two issues are dealt with, um, a modern Israeli who is well-educated and would like to study Talmud still has a lot of work to do, um, but uh, at least has the tools to do that. And the same holds true for the uh, Koran Talmud. The Koran Talmud in no way um, just spoon feeds the uh, whoever's learning it uh, with the information. Rather, um, first of all, from a linguistic perspective, um, it is written in the same kind of language that one would expect in modern uh, scholarly writings, so it can feel familiar um, and accessible to anyone educated um, in in the modern world. Um, and in terms of the marginalia, that too um, has not only been translated, but rather um, updated with um, with research that was not available when Ruf Steinsaltz was writing his commentary over the years. Um, you know, some of the uh, um, marginalia was updated with uh, research done in literally uh, just the last, uh, last few years. And that, too, is something that uh, can create a sense of familiarity and uh, will resonate with people who have a broader intellectual interest and um, and are familiar 
with these different uh, areas of, uh, of study. And just like with the uh, Hebrew edition, there is still a lot of room for hard work. And one of the things that expresses that is that um, on one side of the Talmud, when you open it up from right to left, um, you are presented with the classic Vilna edition of the Talmud, which is an educational um, message that we're trying to convey, which is once one is done using the tools uh, in the translation and the marginalia and, and so on, um, it is uh, best to move ahead and try to study uh, the Talmud in its uh, original form. I think for sure what Avishai says is, is definitely true. I think the current Talmud Bavli offers something which just isn't available um, anywhere else in terms of the opportunity to have a really immersive experience when learning the Talmud to understand who the people were, what they were saying, the language they were speaking, the world that they lived in, and to understand that the Talmud is really uh, is their conversations and their discussions written down. And uh, only by being immersed in that world can we really understand the ins and outs, the backgrounds, the niches of their of their discussions and understand the how those discussions became the basis of halacha today. Um, so I know personally myself, um, I've gained a huge amount from learning the Koran Talmud Bavli. Um, and I think it's definitely, as I wish I said, because of those unique elements that it brings. Yeah, I think I agree with that 100% as well. Um, you know, I, I only started learning from the Koran Talmud Bavli in the last few years. Um, but I think it, it, it's given, it's, it's a completely different understanding to the Talmud. Um, at least for me. You know, it, the current Talmud Bavli isn't about, you know, the traditional Ion. It's not, it isn't about, you know, what does Rashi say versus the Rush bum versus the Rosh versus whoever. It's talking about the, the Talmud itself. It's talking about the Pshat. And then with you know the the marginalia the stuff you know the the notes from Rav Steinzaltz with the the pictures and the graphs and the charts and the maps, it just helps you understand exactly what the the Gemara is saying. And if you then listen along, so for example, if you're learning Dafyami, and you listen along to one of the, the amazing podcasts that are available that are out there, um, you know you can get the the other stuff um, from there. And, and that's Ruf Steinzot, was Ruf Steinzot's philosophy as well, is that you should be learning, learning the Talmud with his commentary alongside um, you know, a more traditional learning experience as well. So I think our final question that was asked uh, by a, a number of people, we've touched upon, uh, but it's, it's worth looking at in detail, um, is what makes Koren unique? To answer that question, we went back to publisher uh, Matthew Miller to talk about what he thinks makes Corin different to all other Jewish publishers. I was thinking about this. There's a there's a number of ways I think that we are more than just distinct from other publishers, but we actually have a a very um, a very strong place. You know, I think one of the ways that we need to distinguish ourselves is in addition to the fact that Yes, we are halakhically based. Everything we do is within the parameters of halakha. Um, but there's like another half a dozen reasons where I think we're very, very different. Number one, we are 
serious Zionists. We believe in the Zionist enterprise. We believe that these are the first shoots of what could be Mashiach. Um, the return to Zion is a um, is a um, is an event that has happened over the past 150 years that was prayed for, but yet unthinkable. If we ignore this, we ignore the, the, the essence of Judaism. Uh, further, we engage with the world. We are not afraid. Uh, we're not always looking over our left shoulder. We're not looking over our right shoulder. We are very happy to engage with people who uh, may not have the same point of view, but are not but willing to learn and listen. Um, scholarly excellence. I think there's very few publishers that have the very high standards in, in scholarship that we, that we apply to all of our work. Uh, finally, uniquely, uh, our concept of design, uh, Corin design is, goes back to the, our founder, Mr. Corin, um, who even designed his own typefaces. These were not designed as a um, as a as a um, as a fun thing, but this was designed specifically for clarity. Uh, our line breaks are well known. You know, we, we line break the Sidurim specifically to slow down the davening to bring out the meaning of the text. If you look at our uh, our Torin our Koran Talmud Bavli, the the design itself. Um, with the four color illustrations is a, you know, helps clarify uh, what we're trying to teach. So it's not designed for ornamentation, but it's designed for clarity and for teaching. We're not afraid. We're happy to engage the world. We think that we can reach more people by keeping our standards of halacha, yet not being scared. And it's that fear that I see in so many Jews on the left and on the right, which I think is very sad. And I hope that we can show a different way. So that's all for this week's episode of the Current Podcast and for this season. Uh, the last few months have been wonderful for us, uh, putting this all together for you. Uh, I certainly enjoy myself personally, uh, being able to speak to some fantastic people and uh, looking, as we say at the top of every episode, uh, looking at what's, off, what's happening off the page. We will be back in a couple of months' time with season two of the Corin podcast, which is going to be a really exciting season with lots of new and exciting things going on. It will be different to season one, and uh, we're really looking forward to bringing that to you in early 2021. In the meantime, of course, Alex, how can people reach us if they'd like to get a hold of us? As always, uh, you can reach us by email uh, at podcast at corinpub.com. Uh, you can reach out to us on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, at Corin Publishers. Uh, just because we've answered some questions in this episode, uh, that shouldn't stop you from sending us messages uh, with anything you'd like to know uh, about what happens here. And of course, uh, all of our titles are available uh, at your local Jewish bookstore and at corinpub.com. So until next time, I'm Maria Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. And this has been The Corin Podcast.